If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent in McClatchy's Washington Bureau. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. The Supreme Court came out with two key rulings on gerrymandering Monday. Texas case that focuses on keeping three districts that were criticized for hampering the minority vote. Only one district was not approved. And we should note that one district happens to be in Fort Worth. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, Supreme Court justices voted to take the case back to the appeals court, saying they should pay attention to the Wisconsin gerrymandering case. Okay, it seems like there's a lot to unpack here. Who's going to help us do just that, Andrea? First, we have Richard Hassan, a legal scholar and expert at UC Irvine, also the author of the popular election law blog. Then we have our favorite fact checker, Lou Jacobson, senior correspondent for PolitiFact, who's going to break down this month's biggest lies. All right. You ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So I think it's easy uh, when you really get transfixed by the day-to-day action in Washington to miss something that we had happen this week. And really in the last several weeks, the Supreme Court has handed down or didn't hand down in, in an earlier case several key decisions related to gerrymandering. This is CNN Breaking News. The Supreme Court ruling that three out of the four districts that were challenged by plaintiffs who said that they were intentionally discriminated against when And this is a topic that I think, particularly on the left, people have really started to pay attention to recently, feeling among a lot of Democrats and liberals that the the party has this structural disadvantage in the House, um, that it just is harder for them to win House seats because of gerrymandering. And there is some merit to that. And, you know, the question for a lot of people is, what is the future of gerrymandering? Yeah, certainly the noise about this decision is on the left, but the big winners of these decisions have been on the right. Um, And this is a subject that weighs heavily on all of our McClatchy markets in North Carolina this week, Texas, and also in Wisconsin earlier this month. And so who better to bring on to the show to talk about that than Rick Casson uh, from UC Irvine. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be with you. So we were hoping lots of stuff decided this week, but maybe you could give us some top lines on sort of where things stand for gerrymandering, given the host of decisions that have come down. What are the top line takeaways? Sure. I didn't expect that the last week in June that we'd be talking about how the Supreme Court still hasn't really made up its mind about what to do about gerrymandering, but that's where we are. Back in October, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case out of Wisconsin saying that the legislative lines there were partisan gerrymanders done by the Republican legislature. It then added a case which it heard arguments in in March out of Maryland where the claim was that Democrats were engaged in a gerrymander of a congressional district there. And we thought everything was teed up for the court to finally decide the issue. 14 years ago, Justice Anthony Kennedy said that uh, he wanted more time. 
uh, and that people should keep bringing theories as to how you could decide when a state goes too far in drawing its district lines and taking party into account. But what the court did is punted on this question. It said, we're not going to decide these issues now, sent the cases back on what I would consider to be technical grounds. And then earlier this week, the court decided not to take a North Carolina case, which presents maybe the most brazen act of partisan gerrymandering. And it said, send that back to the lower court too, rather than decide the case on the merits. So right now, it looks like the court is going to duck the issue, at least for the foreseeable future, till one of these cases makes itself back to the Supreme Court. And by then, we don't know if we'll have the same justices on the court. Well, Rick, let me, let me ask you, is 14 years not long enough for Anthony Kennedy? Well, you'd think it would be. You know, one of the things that Justice Kennedy said in his opinion in a case called Veef 14 years ago involving a Pennsylvania redistricting is maybe rather than think of these cases as under the Equal Protection Clause, where the question is about treating different voters unequally, maybe they should be thought of as First Amendment questions where someone's right of association was being infringed. And in the Wisconsin case that the court just decided, a case called Gill versus Whitford, Justice Kagan, for the four liberal justices on the court, really fleshed out and developed this First Amendment theory that Justice Kennedy has been toying with for the last 14 years. And yet Kennedy didn't join that part of the opinion. He didn't reject it either. It seemed to be kind of a battle between Kagan and Roberts, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, over the soul of Justice Kennedy. And if, you know, I called him in a piece I wrote, it's like Justice Hamlet. He still can't decide where he is after so many years. And it makes me wonder if he'll ever decide. It might be that he's decided he's going to pass this on to the next justice that might join the Supreme Court. Well, Rick, I mean, I, I know you're not a mind reader, but are there educated guesses about why he, he hasn't done this? Is it because he might just be ready to retire and move on? Not, and he just doesn't have to worry about it anymore. Someone else is probably. Well, there, were, there was a little hint in the travel ban case that the court decided this week. Travel ban case, not about partisan gerrymandering, obviously, but there was a separate concurring opinion by Justice Kennedy, speaking only for himself, where he said, look, not every wrong in society can be solved by the courts. Not every wrong committed by other branches of government can be solved by the courts. And it's really about the oath that each executive and legislative member takes they have an independent obligation to enforce the Constitution. And so maybe his solution to partisan gerrymandering, just like his solution on the Trump travel ban, is rely on the good faith of legislators and executive branch officials to do the right thing. Now, that to me seems like not the way to go. But if, if that's the way you're going to go, then on partisan gerrymandering, you leave it to the Wisconsin legislature or the Maryland legislature to decide how much gerrymandering is too much gerrymandering and courts stay out of it. That's the position Justice Scalia took 14 years ago. Maybe this is Kennedy's silent way of trying to get there without actually saying that he's giving up. Uh, on the question of courts getting involved at some later date. Yeah, that seems to match sort of the response from the right. We wanted to read um, uh, Ken Paxton, our attorney general in Texas, put out a statement after the ruling yesterday in Texas and said, the court rightly recognized that the Constitution protects the right of Texans to draw their own legislative districts and rejected the misguided efforts of unelected judges to wrest control of Texas elections from Texas voters. Uh, is the power back in the hands of the states? Well, not only is the power back in the hands of the states, but that Texas case is somewhat different than the North Carolina case that we talked about and the Wisconsin case, the Maryland case. In Texas, the claim was that the district lines that were drawn were drawn in a racially discriminatory way. 
And so in some ways, Texas is even more important because the court has long said that you can't draw district lines in violation of the Voting Rights Act. And here, in an opinion by Justice Alito, with a very strong dissent by Justice Sotomayor, the Supreme Court really seemed to pull back on the scope of the Voting Rights Act, giving states like Texas, which used to be subject to federal oversight of their voting rules under a part of the Voting Rights Act the Supreme Court struck down exactly five years before the Texas opinion this week, that these states now, like Texas, don't have to get federal approval anymore. And now, thanks to the ruling this week, they have freer reign in drawing lines that might minimize the voting power of minority voters. And it's going to be very hard to prove that states have done so intentionally, which would allow for all kinds of other remedies uh, to um, Voting Rights Act violations. The majority was not willing to go there. The dissenters, all the liberal justices, wanted greater oversight over Texas and more reining in of their power to draw district lines without taking into account what it's going to do to minority voting. You know, Rick, I just want to make clear for the the listeners, you know, there have been a lot of recent decisions or non-decisions from the Supreme Court as it uh, relates to gerrymandering. And this week, the cases that you and Andrea were just discussing, where it was really specifically at this idea that whether or not racial, racially motivated gerrymandering or redistricting was going to be constitutional. You wrote very critically, I thought, after uh, the decision that this was the wrong course of action. Why, why is that? Well, historically, the Supreme Court has provided very strong protections for voting rights. And yet, beginning five years ago, when the court decided that Shelby County case and got rid of that federal oversight, things have really gone downhill. And it's corresponded to not only a period of polarization in American politics, but also a period where red states have passed laws that have made it harder for people to register and to vote. And the political process is not working the way it should. We have depended in the past on the court to serve as a backstop to make sure that minority voting rights are protected. That's the idea that's enshrined not only in the Constitution, but further protections are given in the Voting Rights Act. What Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent in the Texas case this week is that the court talks all the right language about the right to vote, but when it comes to a remedy, it's really a hollow remedy. The court is making it very hard to actually win these cases, and the effect is going to be that minority voters are going to have much less protection than they've had before. And that, of course, has partisan consequences because we know, especially in the American South, that there's a huge overlap between race and party. North of 90% of African-American voters vote for Democrats. More than two-thirds of white voters in Texas uh, vote for Republicans. And so there's this overlap of partisanship and race and how the court's going to deal with that and how the court dealt with it this week, it to me is really troubling because I feel, I feel like it's not protecting minority voting rights the way it has in the past. And now in that Texas case, they did single out one district in, in Fort Worth, we might add, that uh, was impermissible. Does that give you any glimmer of hope that there is some standard in racial gerrymandering? What's the future of that district and, and what did they decide there? Well, I'd say quite the contrary, because well, that district, that particular district, I think it was a House District 90, was drawn in such a way because minority legislators wanted it drawn in that way. That was the only one, the one that, that where the Republican Texas legislature acceded to the wishes of the Democratic minority in drawing these districts. That was the only one that was found to be a racial gerrymander, and the court said that one has to be thrown out. It's going to have a very minor effect. And if anything, it shows that uh, the court's being kind of superficial in how it is examining these claims. It was shocking to me that the court spent more time, both at oral argument and its opinion, on whether the case was properly before it 
than in its analysis of the actual districts. Usually these cases get into the nitty gritty of the facts. And it seemed to me that Justice Alito just kind of went over the facts very quickly. The court doesn't want to be bothered with the details. I should point out that the lower courts, lower court opinions in this case ran for hundreds and hundreds of pages. And the court just did not engage in the kind of analysis that it normally does when it's trying to determine if minority voting rights are being infringed upon. You know, Rick, I, I want to back up for a moment because I feel like gerrymandering is a discussion. You know, I cover the Democratic Party for McClatchy, and I feel like it, you know, gerrymandering is a word that has gained a lot of currency in the Democratic Party recently. And I, and I wonder as we, you know, we are now approaching the next round of redistricting, uh, you know, after these cases and cases in the last several years, I mean, if you could sum up, how has the legal system changed or not changed your redistricting process from, from the last round in 2010? I mean, as legislators gear up after the 2020 elections redraw, are, are, are there a lot of new restrictions on this? And if, you, and if you're a Democrat, can you feel at all at ease that maybe there are more restrictions in place to prevent gerrymandering, or is, or is that not the case? Well, first of all, I should point out that uh, both Democrats and Republicans engage in gerrymandering. Sure, of course. Uh, you tend to see much more of uh, Republicans doing it for the simple reason that they control more state governments. And so I think if Democrats controlled more state governments, as they did in Maryland, you'd see more Democratic gerrymandering. I get the feeling Democratic voters might be slightly less concerned about that, but that doesn't mean it's right. doesn't mean it's right. So, you know, I would say that uh, on the question of whether or not gerrymandering has gotten tougher legally, I would say quite the opposite. I, I think people are going to read the Supreme Court's non-decision this term as a license to do what North Carolina did. So in North Carolina, Representative David Lewis, who was the legislative leader in the General Assembly on the drawing of the congressional districts after the last set of congressional districts were found to be a racial gerrymander, uh, and he wanted to protect himself from that. He said, this is a partisan gerrymander. And he was asked why in a 50-50 state he would draw 10 of 13 congressional districts to favor Republicans. And his answer was, I simply can't figure out how to draw an 11th. I mean, it's just about as brazen as you can get. And I think it's going to be free reign next time. And remember, between 2010 and 2020, we've had a lot of technological advances. It's become easier to get data on voters and know exactly where each party's voters are. And so it's uh, according at least to an amicus brief that was submitted by professors uh, Groffman and Gaddy in uh, the Wisconsin gerrymandering case, it's now possible to draw a gerrymander that can last the entire decade. It used to be that it, you know if you cut the baloney too thin, you were going to be in trouble. No longer is that the case. You can now sustain even some wave elections and still keep a majority of seats, even if you no longer control a majority of the votes in the state. That's a pretty pessimistic assessment if you're someone who you know wants uh, gerrymandering reform, it sounds like. Well, the best hope for gerrymandering reform, I would say, would be in those states, and there are about 20 or so states, where there is an initiative process where you can get around the legislature and impose reform. So in California, with a strong Democratic majority, we've imposed a redistricting commission through uh, the initiative process. In Arizona, where there is a Republican legislature, the voters went around the legislature and imposed uh, this process. This is probably going to be on the ballot in Michigan. And so it's not, gonna, it's not available in Texas. But in those states where there is an initiative process as part of the state law, it is possible to rein in some of this. And it's going to take political action, political action, which, of course, is tougher when you've got gerrymandered districts. But political action seems to be the only hope of trying to uh, get uh, at least partisan gerrymandering under control. 
And since we're talking about retirements, can you talk a little bit about the different ways that the right and the left use this as a political motivator? It was such a big deal for Republicans last cycle. Uh, is the left waking up to the courts being a political motivator on their side? Well, I do think that uh, if and when Justice Kennedy decides to leave the court, that uh, the issue of the court is becoming to become much more of a question for um, uh, voters on the left, because they've had the last few decades with swing voters, Kennedy and before him, O'Connor. And in both of uh, those circumstances, while you had a number of conservative decisions, more conservative decisions than liberal decisions, there were still plenty of decisions that um, helped the, the left. So, for example, upholding certain affirmative action laws, um, uh, recognizing that the Constitution uh, includes the right of same-sex marriage uh, uh, within it. Uh, those kinds of things are potentially going to go away uh, if we end up with uh, President Trump being able to appoint a replacement for someone like Justice Kennedy. And then I think uh, people on the left will care about the court as much as people on the right have uh, with their concern over uh, Roe versus Wade and other kinds of uh, cases uh, over the last few decades. Well, thank you, Rick. Thanks so much for coming on the show on a busy Supreme Court week. Uh, it's been great to be with you. Great. Thank you, Rick. Now we're going to switch gears for a minute. It's the last Tuesday of the month. Which means it's time to bring in Lou Jacobson from PolitiFact to go over the biggest lies of the month, the biggest lies of June. You know, Andrew, I have a feeling that uh, there are a few worth examining this month. Just a hunch. As with every month. Lou, thank you so much for coming on the show yet again. Sure thing. Uh, look, obviously there has been a great deal of focus on the border, the policy there of separating children from their parents. And we, we want to take a look at some of the claims that have been made surrounding this controversy. And let's start here with something that President Trump said on June 19th. Now, I think this is him explaining why he thinks this policy, this quote unquote zero tolerance policy was necessary. And here is his quote. There's been a 1,700% increase in asylum claims over the last 10 years. Think of that. Think of that. We're a great country, but you can't do that. Smugglers know how the system works. They game the system. They game Lou, how, how did PolitiFact rate that? So we gave it a mostly true, mainly because the number is correct. It's, there's some solid backup for that. What kept it from being entirely true is that he really overstated that they game the system. What's been happening is in the past few years, there's been a lot of instability in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, a lot of criminal activity, gangs, government instability. And this has driven a lot of people who live there to seek asylum in the U.S., basically either walking or getting somehow to the U.S. southern border and seeking asylum. And there is really no evidence that people are gaming the system. These are people who are fearing for their life and are fleeing and are seeking asylum. So while, while the number is correct in 2007, it was about 5,000 people claiming credible fear, which is the term for asylum. And in 2016, it rose to 91,000, which is a 16,000-plus percentage hike. But it doesn't mean they're gaming the system. It's really a factor of geopolitical forces, criminal activity. You know, it's not people who are just, just trying to sneak in uh, to sort of gain a foothold here for their own reasons other than they, they are terrified for their lives. 
Well, and let's continue on that same topic since this has uh, sucked up so much of the oxygen in this month of June. Our next comment comes from Matt Schlapp, chair of the American Conservative Union, who said the Trump administration's policy of separating families is the same way that Barack Obama did it. This is something that our own newsroom has dug into a little bit, but what'd you give it? Yeah, we gave that a false. So, well, our first claim, we gave Trump a mostly true for the number, basically, for the total number of people coming here going up so quickly. In terms of how the two two administrations treated people, particularly families with children, Schlapp is saying that like, oh, it's basically the same. And it was not basically the same. Under the Obama administration, they did have a small number of cases. I don't think we have exact numbers where unfortunately parents were separated from children. But the Trump administration is trying to say, oh, well, that was just, just sort of, you know, a generalized policy. Well, it really wasn't. That was the exception rather the, than the rule. In general, the Obama administration refrained from prosecuting cases involving adults who crossed the border with their kids, as opposed to the current administration, which has chosen to prosecute adult border crossers even when they have kids. So instead of being the exception, it's actually a zero tolerance policy under the Trump administration. Those uh, two things aren't the same. Right. I mean, Lou, it it sounds like we're talking about that. Yes, some families were separated during the Obama administration, but, you know, the the sheer number that have been separated seems like it's gone up because of this this specific policy that is a change from the uh, this specific zero tolerance policy that is a change in the Obama administration. Right. Both the number has gone up and the intention was different. The, The Obama years, it was an exception and it was an unfortunate side effect. But in terms of the Trump administration, it's the stated policy, or at least it was until the executive order. Okay, well, let's switch up to a different subject here. A little bit of a curveball on this one. (laughs) Uh, This is something that the Environmental Protection Agency said on June 13th uh, in a statement to to Bloomberg News. uh, Quote, the science is clear. Under President Trump, greenhouse gas emissions are down. Lou? What what did you guys find when you looked into this? Well, so it's interesting. A reader suggested that we look into it, and I did. So what I got from the experts in discussing this with them was that there probably was a kind of inertia effect, that the Obama years, the actions taken by the government to either force companies or to encourage companies to cut down on emissions probably had some lingering effects because you put in certain hardware to decrease the amount of of gases um, going in the atmosphere. Uh, You know, it's not going to stop on a dime because the president changes. That said, given the sorts of policies that the Trump administration um, is pursuing, including, you know, uh, greater emphasis on coal and other fossil fuels, things like car uh, fuel efficiency standards, loosening those, it's not expected that if these policies continue into the next couple of years, one would expect that those uh, greenhouse gas emissions probably are going to go up in the next couple of years. At some point, it's going to be a turnaround. That said, you know, some companies may have taken the cues from the Obama administration and are happy with that and are uh, uh, trying to continue to cut down on their emissions. So we don't really know what's going to happen for sure in the future. We could see a stagnation. We could see it go up or down. But uh, in the end, we give this a half true because 
two different data sources, which the EPA hadn't even given us, we just found on our own, show that in 2017 it did go down. The future is a little bit sketchier. We don't know for sure what's going to happen. I like, Lou, that you found them on your own, the, the EPA relationship with the media is a little strained <laughs> and a little strange I was just thinking that. these these days. Um, so so good for you, Lou, uh, yeah, for, thanks. For, for doing the, the independent research there. Sure. Well, hey, Lou, thank you so much, as always, uh, for coming on the show. Sounds great. Thanks so much. So, Andrea, you know I love our chats with Lou, but there's something I love even more. It's time for the lightning round. You're up. I want to use mine this week to spotlight a story from our fantastic colleague, Lindsay Wise, for the she Kansas City She is, in City fact, Star. fantastic. That is true. And we get to sit right next to her. She has a story about Josh Hawley, a 38-year-old Republican Senate candidate, we should note, often called the top Senate recruit in the country for his party, who spent tens of thousands of dollars paying lawyers from his campaign to review a bunch of emails that he sent as a law professor at Mizzou before they are released under a sunshine FOIA request from Democrats. No implication of wrongdoing here. Just interesting that that it's kind of an unusual choice, but I guess an abundance of caution is how you get to be a 38-year-old top Senate recruit. Yeah, right. You don't, you don't do that uh, carelessly, I don't think. What do you got, Alex? So my lightning round pick is MJ Hagar. Now, who is MJ Hagar? You might be one of two million people that have watched her campaign's three-minute web ad that they released recently that basically details not just her military heroism, but how when she was in the military, she fought to overturn a ban on women in combat situations and ground combat situations, successfully fought that. And she is kind of this newest celebrity candidate on the trail for Democrats. You know, she is running in a very conservative-leaning district in north of Austin, I think any sort of clear-eyed analysis would suggest that she is a, a long shot. But what we've seen with these celebrity candidates, with someone like Amy McGrath in Kentucky Six, or even Randy Bryce in Wisconsin One, they're able to raise a lot of money. They're able to generate a lot of excitement. And the hope from Democrats even here in D.C. is that's the sort of thing that can help push her and maybe make this long shot bid something a little bit more realistic. Yeah, this is one of five congressional seats that Democrats are targeting in Texas and probably the longest shot of, of the five. Um, but we're familiar with gimmicky campaign ads. This one might be backed up with a movie starring Angelina Jolie, which is certainly helpful to anyone trying to bring a long shot race online. Well, let me just say I got an email from my uh, dad late last night calling it the best campaign ad he's ever seen. And Alex's dad has seen a lot of campaign ads. He's seen, well, m- maybe. He's, see- he's seen a few campaign ads. So it has the John Rorty seal of approval, so you know it's a legit ad. All right, Andrea, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for bringing it back to Texas at the end there, Alex. I mean, I just, we're both from Texas. I just feel like in our hearts, the Lone Star State uh, beats. True. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.